0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all this morning. It is a absolutely perfectly beautiful day. Um, we're going to start today. Our reading is Galatians three, which includes a passage that is very dear to my heart and many people's hearts. But this is the part that I always find meaningful. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Does it matter what your background is, and these are major dividing lines in society. This is racial lines, this is social standing lines, these are gender lines, and those are lines that still very much exist in our world today. And Paul says those don't matter, those mean nothing. What matters is unity in Christ, made possible by faith in him. So I've always found that really beautiful. All right, Dave, come on up and lead us in some singing.
1: Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, I wanna see you, I wanna see you. open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, I wanna see you, I wanna see you see you high and lift it up. I want to see you. I want to see you. See you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love. As we sing holy, holy, holy. See you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. singing. Thank you. Thanks, Dave.
0: Bill's going to be doing communion for us today, so come on up, Bill.
2: Morning, everyone. Um, to prepare for communion this morning, I, I've i been thinking about generations, I guess. Uh, one thought, uh, if I was to tell my grandparents that church would, people would have masks they would be social distancing, then they'd probably kick me out of the house. Uh, you know, it's just really, I'm sure for them, they, they could not imagine that. It would be just ridiculous. But anyway, and then, so an aunt of mine in September, Aunt Janet, passed away. She was the last of her siblings. So, you know, it—it it, these generations move on. And uh, and then another one was uh, was Aunt Phoebe Lyons. She was the last of her siblings, my grandfather's family. Um, again, you know, another generation passes on. So anyway, so then looking at the idea of generations, uh, Luke one. And actually the title of it is, is Mary's Song. So Mary is uh, pregnant at that point. And so her, and she talks about generations and how, how this child will carry on through the generations. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped the servant, his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And then Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So in that, she does mention the different generations and how our Lord will... Uh, go through those generations. But back to communion then. If, so if I could read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll start at 23, I believe it is. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if if you do have your communion uh, emblems, well... Perhaps we should pray for the emblems, and then we can partake. Uh, Lord, we we do thank you for this opportunity to come here this morning and worship, and partake in communion, and think about um, things on this on this earth, and and things outside of this earth, perhaps, and we do ask that you be with us and we we do ask these things in christ's name amen so please go ahead and partake thank you
0: all right i want to start by confessing and and um this might become obvious the more i speak that i i struggled with what i was going to say today for a long time knowing that this was a little window in the the david and goliath series we're doing and um I I didn't know what I was gonna speak about personally. And I, I really wrestled with that. And I found something to talk about that, that I'm very passionate about and has personal ramifications for me. But before I get into that sorry <coughs> before I get into that, I want to ask a question. Does anybody know, has anybody heard the term Redlining. Does anybody know what redlining means? Sorry, Paul. Maximum speed. Maximum speed. Is that what you're going to say, Dennis? That's right. Yeah, when you're revving it up, the RPMs are real high. That's redlining. That's uh, if you would have asked me five days ago what redlining is, that's what I would have said as well. I when I took Teagan to the to Mount Edith Cavell, the road up and down Mount Edith Cavell is very steep, and I put my little automatic car into manual because then I feel like a man when I'm driving and um, and no more or less manly than before and I redlined it a few times around some of those, those turns I revved it up a little high and had to rein it in that's what I would say redlining is too but there's a second definition for redlining I'd also never heard of this definition before um, redlining was something that happened in America in the 1930s uh, I'll read it here Um, Government surveyors graded neighborhoods in 239 American cities, color-coding them green for best, blue for still desirable, yellow for definitely declining, and red for hazardous. Those red-lined areas were denied uh, loaning, uh, denied applications for housing. They were denied any possible way to get out of that neighborhood or to build up that neighborhood. And what it did, they, they studied... The effects of this. So from 1935 to 1939, this was in, in effect redlining. The government would literally outline entire sections of the city saying, don't invest here. Do not allow them to move out of the this, this situation they're in. And as you can imagine, this was largely determined by racial and ethnic backgrounds. backgrounds. I think it says up there about um, African Americans, Catholics, Jews, immigrants from Asia's Asia and Southern Europe were deemed undesirable. So unless you were from Northern Europe, the the British Isles, um, Scandinavia, Germany, you would be not denied the ability to, even if you wanted to move out of the situation you're in, you were denied the ability to do so. And as you can imagine, that had long-lasting effects. Because it wasn't until 1968, 30 years later, that Lyndon B. Johnson, president at the time, passed the Fair Housing Act, and the Fair Housing Act meant that you were no longer allowed to base uh, access to housing on race. That seems like the most fundamentally basic act you could pass. Just don't deny people based on their race the ability to move out of poverty. Well, 80 years later, they did a follow-up study of the effects of redlining, and found that three-quarters of those neighbourhoods are still among the most impoverished neighbourhoods in the States, and fully 60% of them, two, two-thirds, two-thirds of those neighbourhoods that were deemed hazardous 80 years ago are still mostly minority, typically black and Latino, and still are far behind on the social economic scale. On the flip side, 91% of areas classified as best that were given the green outline, um, remain middle to upper class income today, and 85% of them are predominantly white. So 80 years later, three-quarters of red line communities, low-income and minority communities, continue to struggle economically. And in cities like Baltimore, um, Baltimore was actually Mason, Georgia. Is it Mason or Macon? M-A-C-O-N, Anyway it was the most redlined city in the United States. 65% of it was redlined. And the population was something like 70% African American. So that was the government deciding we're not going to allow these people to move out of their situation, to move out of poverty. After MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. A week later, Lyndon B. Johnson passed the Fair Housing Act, which was intended to dismantle the racist systems that prevent people, usually poor and non-white people, from living in certain neighborhoods and accessing the level of public services available to their wealthier and and whiter neighborhoods. So these neighborhoods, not only could they get access to better housing, though they had far inferior schooling, had far inferior services. Um, There was a ghettoization that happened. In the 30s, there was still segregation, by the way. So they were deliberately put there because they were black. But there was also redlining, which was um, incidental segregation. Still systematic and still destructive. In 2015, the Obama administration passed the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act, which is an awkward title. AFFH is what I'll call it. The intention is to promote equal housing opportunities and level the playing field so that all neighborhoods provide the quality services and amenities that are important for people to live successful lives. The 2015 rules required cities and towns in order to receive funding from HUD, which is the the Housing and Urban Development Department of the federal government. Um, To receive funding from HUD, they had to document patterns of racial bias in their neighborhoods, to publicly report the results every three to five years, and to set and track goals to reduce segregation. Under the new rules, any jurisdiction that receives money from HUD must analyze its housing occupancy by race, disability, familial status, economic status, English proficiency, English proficiency, and other categories. It must then analyze factors which contribute to any prohibitive barriers in housing and formulate a plan to remedy the impediments. The plan can be approved or disapproved by HUD. This is done at both the local and regional levels, so a city like all of Chicago can do this, and then each suburb of Chicago would do this. If the federal government is not satisfied with the community's efforts to reduce disparities, federal funds would be withheld. That's AFFH. And that seems like appropriate legislation to me. Um, of course, conservatives, certain far-right conservatives said, well, you're just social engineering. They, they decried it as just an attempt to socially engineer. But the social engineering is when you say these communities cannot access what these other communities, that's social engineering. And it's combating that for, for the good of, of all. Are you following, is that, that's all history, that's all politics, that's all government stuff that has real ramifications for real people who are stuck in very real poverty. That's, when I'm, that's the point. Okay, so why am I saying all this? What's this, got to do with any, what's this got to do with my life? What's this got to do with your life? This week, uh, Angie and I were watching Jeopardy and took a break for some snacks. And while I was in the kitchen, Angie said, did you see this? And I hadn't seen it. And she said, it's a, it's a tweet from President Trump. And Angie, what was my reaction to this tweet? Sheer anger and sickness. Borderline rage. Um, At a tweet that really has nothing to do with me. But I'll show you the tweet. I've got it here. It says, I'm happy to inform all of the people living their suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood. Your housing prices will go up based on the market and crime will go down. I have rescinded the Obama-Biden AFFH rule. Enjoy. (laughs) All the work of those Fair Housing Acts of 1968 and 2015 undone completely. And what does this say about the poor? What does this say about minorities? I'm asking, what does this say about them? They don't matter. We'd like to get rid of them. That they're harming us. That they're doing harm to us. That by decreasing property values, their existence is bad for me. That they're criminals. That he just labels them criminals. That they're bothersome, a nuisance. That they have no place, literally, because this is about housing. They have no place in the American dream. They're a bother. I got extremely frustrated at this. But I don't bring this up now to start a Trump rant. And believe me, I lost several hours of sleep thinking about how I'm going to rant about this man. But I'm not going to because we don't need that. It's not not very holy. But I do want to focus on what does this say about me? I'm fascinated by how he all caps suburban lifestyle dream. I'm fascinated by that. Like it's it's something, like an entity for us to worship. And that's because it is. Suburban lifestyle dream is just a simple rephrasing of the American dream. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that all Americans are entitled to. And before you say, why do you always talk about American politics? This is not something that's absent from Canada at all. This is not the American dream. This is the North American dream. This is the Western dream since the Enlightenment. This has been the dream. The suburban lifestyle dream is the dream. In fact, I remember reading in the paper, back when I used to read the paper, back when they delivered it to my house, in 2010, saying that there was an article in the paper that, uh, citizens of St. Albert, one of the wealthiest communities in Alberta, were petitioning um, Habitat for Humanity to not be able to buy a, a tract of land because it would, guess what? Guess what it would do? Decrease their property value. And so they wanted to, to shoo Habitat for Humanity out of St. Albert because it would affect them adversely. Giving people who have no home a home affects your housing and, and that's all you can see. is just the cost of reselling your house. That's, that's all you see. You're so wealthy. You've got it so good. You have every privilege available to you. And you still deny other people the most, one of the most fundamental rights, housing. And Habitat for Humanity, by the way, they buy their house, they mortgage their house at a discounted rate, but they take ownership of their house. And still St. Albertans said, we, we don't want those people here. Get them out of here. This is not just an American issue. It's a North American issue. The suburban lifestyle dream is alive and well. I want to talk real quick about dreams in Scripture because dreams play a prominent role in this. Dreams in Scripture are a very mixed blessing for the dreamer and the object of the dream. For example, Joseph is the most famous dreamer in Scripture. His dreams were advantageous to him. In fact, he told his brothers, you're all going to bow down to me. and In fact, everybody's going to bow down to me. And that would eventually come true, but not until it led to his enslavement and his estrangement. Joseph had to go through decades of hell before that would happen. So for the dreamer, it's a very mixed blessing. The second most famous dreamer in the Bible is Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel's constantly either interpreting or having dreams with enormous significance. It's a beautiful book. And, and his dreams were vindicating to Daniel. They led to his sterling reputation. He rose to prominence because of his ability to interpret dreams. But they came at tremendous risk to Daniel and to his colleagues. It came at tremendous risk to them. They were thrown in the lion's den because of dreams. God was with them and delivered them. Dreams, Daniel's dreams were also a tremendous risk to royalty at the time. In fact, in, in Daniel 4... Daniel interprets a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, I know your God gifts you to interpret dreams. What does my dream mean? And Daniel's like, mm, let's not worry about that. Let's, let's talk about something else, king. And he's like, no, please tell me. And Daniel's like, okay, but you're really not going to like it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me, what's the dream mean? And the dream was, you're going to go graze like cow. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to go graze on grass like a cow. And you're going to be like that for a long time before God reinstates you. And Nebuchadnezzar To his credit, it's like, okay, let it be as the Lord says. And Daniel told him that dream at the risk of his head. There's always a cost for these dreamers, at least for the dreamer and for the object of the dream. For those in power, dreams are terrifying, and they result in being taken down a few pegs. For those under oppression, dreams lead to validation, vindication, and victory. So in the Bible, if somebody has a dream, those in power should shake with fright, and those who are oppressed should be ready to rise up. A few examples, Joseph and his brothers, they were more powerful than him because of his dreams, they sent him into slavery. Gideon, in the book of Judges, Gideon has a dream about a tumbling loaf of bread that takes out a tent. That was trouble for the Midianites, the people in power who were oppressing the Israelites because that whirling thing of bread was Gideon and he took out the whole the tent, the armies of, of the Midianites. For Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the one in power and Daniel's dream meant trouble for him and vindication for Daniel. And if you compare Joseph and Mary, their dreams, where the angel says, go, I'll be with you, versus Pilate, at the end of Jesus' life, Pilate's wife says, I had a dream, leave this guy alone. Dreams mean trouble for those in power, and they mean vindication for those who are oppressed in Scripture. More than anything, this is what I'm saying. Dreams with divine origin lead to God being glorified and his will being made known and his humble dreamer being raised from pain and obscurity up to honor and dignity. Even Solomon. Solomon is the portrait of power. No follower of Yahweh has ever had more power and wealth and privilege than Solomon. At least in the Old Testament. He was given the opportunity to ask for whatever he wanted in a dream. And what does he ask for? Wisdom. He doesn't ask for more power, more privilege, more profit. He asks for wisdom. He shows humility. And, it, and in asking for wisdom, he was given all those other things. He was in power, but he approached it humbly. And he was vindicated for it. So let's go back to the suburban lifestyle dream. The suburban lifestyle dream is a dream of comfort, individual, individuality, where you worry about just yourself and maybe your, your immediate family what is suburbia? It's removed. It's apart. You're fenced in. All the houses look the same, but you don't know your neighbors. That's part of the suburban dream. Another part of the suburban dream is consumerism. Gain and gain and gain for yourself. And wealth. That's the biggest part of the suburban lifestyle dream. And I'd know I know that these are all parts of this dream because I fall victim to pursuing the exact same dream. I fall victim to the suburban lifestyle dream. That has been my dream. I, I spend, Angie and I, we spend a lot of our time and energy trying to establish stability, trying to establish safety, trying to establish social standing. Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but they've been my primary motivation for a long time. I show charity and hospitality when convenient, when it works for me, when it'll make me look good, when when I'll get a tax receipt for it. I am passingly familiar with my neighbors and also passingly fearful of others in a judgmental way. I make decisions based more on advantages to my own bank account rather than how it will meet the needs of others around me. The suburban lifestyle dream... I'm victim of it. I'm a victim of it. I'm, I'm fall prey to it. And you do too. The suburban lifestyle dream, here's the other thing. It comes easy to me. I Angie and I, we have a very terrible mortgage. But we were able to get a mortgage because we were never redlined, and we never would have been redlined. We could be in the exact same financial situation as an African American neighbor in 1936, and I'd get the mortgage, and they wouldn't, because they're black. And 80 years later, that has generational, Bill talked about generations, that has generational consequences. I've never been denied any rights or services based on my skin color, gender, religion, sexuality, or ethnicity. Ever in my life. I've had people not like me, but that's because sometimes I'm not likable. It's got nothing to do with any of those background traits. All of those things, by the way, skin color, gender, religion, ethnicity... All of which, I, de- I am the portrait of the definitive norm for people in power in our country. If you wonder what power has looked like for the last at least 150 years, probably 400 years, in Canada, it's this. It looks like me. Male, white, Christian. That's what power looks like in our world. I've never been denied rights and services. I've never been silenced or oppressed based on my skin, color, gender, religion, sexuality, or ethnicity. I've never had to fear authority. Authority doesn't target me because I look like authority. I once got pulled over. I was on my way to do Lisa and Yella's um, wedding planning in Barhead, and I got pulled over. And I got out of it. Do you know why? I didn't advocate to get out of it, but he asked questions about me. And I got out of it because I'm a pastor. Now, if I'm a First Nations guy driving a souped-up vehicle, do you think I get out of that ticket? If we're both doing 112, do you think he gets out of that ticket? He could be just as polite as me, just as kind to of the officer. You think he gets out of it? Not a chance. I got out of it because I'm white and I'm Christian. I'm a good guy. I'm one of the good guys. I deserve to be let free. I was breaking the law, and I was very thankful to be let free, but that's privilege. And so authority doesn't target me because I look like authority. I've never had my motivations or my character challenged in any meaningful way based on my skin color, gender, religion, sexuality, or ethnicity. Although that's not true. One time when we did a field trip to the swimming pool in St. Albert and I was standing there watching the kindergarten kids, the lifeguard came up and asked me twice, sir, what are you doing here? Because I'm a man watching a bunch of kids. But frankly. That's very understandable. So the suburban lifestyle dream is designed for me. And based solely on my race, gender, and religious background, I am empowered to attain that dream, even at the expense of my less empowered neighbors. The suburban lifestyle dream is for me and by me. And I fall into the same trap of temptation as anybody. The suburban lifestyle dream, as promoted by the president of the most powerful country in the world, is founded on nothing less than selfishness and white supremacy. In fact, the reason suburbs exist at all is because of something called white flight. Black people started to get rights. They started to accumulate some wealth. They started to move into areas where white people lived because they finally had access to that. And what did the white people do? Out of fear, move away to the suburbs where the black people weren't. It's called white flight, and it's a phenomenon that is very real and very documentable. It's not necessarily explicitly racist, but it has racist overtones, and the suburban lifestyle dream is based on that desire. Is my So if the suburban lifestyle dream is based on selfishness, privilege, white supremacy, is my life founded on nothing less than selfishness, Privilege and white supremacy? Or do I have the faith to declare the suburban lifestyle dream a false dream? To speak against it with the power of Jeremiah, who speaks God's wisdom. This is, Jer- I think this is Jeremiah, yeah. It says, indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. Do I have the power to say that about the suburban lifestyle dream in myself? Or Zechariah 10, they tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Zechariah 10.2. The suburban lifestyle dream is false. It does lead us astray. It does comfort us in vain. And it fails to benefit all of God's people. It leaves us lost like self-obsessed, individualistic little sheep, unable to discern the will of our shepherd. We're so blinded by consumerism and me and me and me and me that we forget about other and you and them. It is both destructive to those who pursue it, destructive to our souls, and destructive to those who are trampled underfoot by it. And I have seen evidence of this in my own faith, in my own life. And so the question is, do I have the faith and the strength to stand up to the Goliath of the suburban lifestyle dream? The Goliath who taunts and beckons my family every hour of every day? The Goliath who bombards us with massive promises of comfort and pleasure and safety and wealth as if those are the things we're supposed to live our lives for? Do I have the strength to dream a new dream, a better dream? Do I have the strength to humble myself like Solomon? To speak truth despite the risk, like Daniel. To remain faithful during life's nightmares, like Joseph. Do I have the will to abandon my own self-centered dreams and listen to the Holy Spirit's dreams for me? To seek first the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Chris. And if suburbia is about one thing, it's the kingdom of me. Every little fenced off plot of land is the kingdom of me. Do I have the power to seek first the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of me? Does this make you, by the way, I know it sounds like it, does this make you a bad person for living in a residential place where you have a fence? Obviously not. No, I'm not saying that. But when this is our dream, when this is our whole pursuit, when this is all we live our lives for, whether it's an acreage, a little fenced-in plot of land, an apartment somewhere, wherever you live, whatever your home is, If that's all you're pursuing, then it's the Suburban Lifestyle Dream. But forget the Suburban Lifestyle Dream. SLD, Suburban Lifestyle Dream. God's people should embrace a different SLD. And this is cheesy, but you can't deny it. SLD, Sacrifice, Love, Discipleship. Those are the dreams that Jesus has for you. My wife's laughing at me at how cheesy that is. Angie, it's good, and it's true. Sacrifice, love, and discipleship. You see it in statements like this. Take up your cross and follow me. Sacrifice and discipleship. You see it in statements like Jesus. Jesus replies to a man who says, this man says, I will follow you, Rabbi. And Jesus indicts his his love of wealth and comfort by saying this. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Comfort and privilege. No. Sacrifice, discipleship, and love. Not comfort, not security, not safety. Only the will of the Father. Sacrifice, love, discipleship. You see it, excuse me, you see it probably most clearly of all in statements like this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to gain their whole kingdom, to build up their whole suburban lifestyle dream, and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their very souls? All three of these passages are from Luke 9. Just one chapter out of many, many, many chapters of Jesus laying waste to the suburban lifestyle dream. The suburban lifestyle dream is false And vain and destructive because it normalizes consumption, self-obsession, and exclusion of others. It's false because it's all about consumption. It's vain because it's all about self-obsession. And it's destructive because it excludes others. Which is destructive to others and destructive to your soul. It promises you the whole world. Suburban lifestyle dream promises you the whole world. But those who are privileged enough to pursue that life often find the forfeiture of their souls instead. Those who are too poor, too black, too indigenous, too gay, too female, too different from the male Christian whiteness of Chris Lance, have historically been excluded from those same privileges and continue to be excluded even today, both overtly and covertly. That suffering becomes generational. Yeah, they have rights. They have, government has mandated that, they have rights, but do we treat them like they have rights, or do we treat them as if they are other? It doesn't matter what the government says. It matters what your heart feels about them. That's what matters. Which is probably why Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are, not the blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the hungry, not blessed are the comfortable. Blessed are the weeping, not blessed are the enwrapped in pleasure. Blessed are the despised, not." Blessed are those who have comfortable social standing. Blessed are those, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the despised. Blessed are those who are excluded from the suburban lifestyle dream because those who are devoted to that dream, for themselves only, are doomed anyways. Why would you want that? It leads to the forfeiture of your soul. So blessed are those who don't have access to that dream, who won't be corrupted by that dream. Blessed are they. And you should be like them. Because... They will know true riches. They will be filled. They will turn their weeping will be turned to laughing, and they will be accepted, welcomed by their heavenly Father. The kingdom of God presents a new dream, an upside down dream, and it's a dream best evidenced in Acts two. In Acts two, the Holy Spirit descends for the first time on God's people. Of all, by the way, God's all, they all speak different languages, which means they're different ethnicities, different, possibly different variations of religious backgrounds. They're from all over the place. It's a real melting mosaic. The Holy Spirit descends for the first time on God's people, and all these people of different ethnicities and backgrounds, and then Peter gives the very first gospel sermon. And he begins by quoting this passage from Joel. This is how the very first gospel sermon ever preached begins. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Not just the privileged people, all people. Not the wealthy people, not the white people, not the suburban lifestyle people, not just them anyway, all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And everyone, everyone, no matter their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter continues by outlining that this was accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A day of the Spirit descending, a day of prophecies and visions and dreams. In Acts 2. And what is the immediate fruit of these new holy dreams among God's people? There is fruit immediately. The first fruit is this. SLD, what was the D again? Discipleship. Thousands come to faith. Thousands on one, in one day come to believe in Jesus and begin to become disciples, following this homeless pilgrim rabbi. So there's discipleship, but there's also sacrifice and love as fruits of the Holy Spirit. Sacrifice, love, and discipleship. Because chapter 2 ends by beautifully detailing the lives of these new dreamers. This is what, how chapter 2 wraps up. After this sermon, after these thousands come to faith, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I have one more page. Then I'm done. Where do you sacrifice love and discipleship? Where do you see sacrifice here? What's an example of sacrifice? If you read this, where do you see sacrifice? They sold what they have and gave to those in need. Sacrifice. Yes, Madison. Where do you see love? They ate together. They rejoiced together. They praised God together. Selling your stuff to give to somebody else is an act of love. Where do you see discipleship? You know what? I actually have it highlighted here because I'm a dork. <laughs> and, and they blend together. Like love and discipleship, they go together. If you are being a good disciple, you are loving others. If you are loving others, you are being a good disciple. So they blend together, but loosely, separate, loosely separated. Discipleship is devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread and prayer, um, eating together a good definition for discipleship is is adding to your number daily those who are being saved that is discipleship examples of love um the believers were together and had everything in common they continued to meet together glad and sincere hearts praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people that sounds like a community of love to me that's very attractive to me and um sorry sacrifice they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need did they ask for repayment they absolutely did not because jesus told them not to explicitly give without ever being repaid just give just like your father gives did they coerce them into joining this community by by? no they they just gave because they needed to give they gave to orphans who nobody else would care for. They gave to widows that nobody else would care for. They gave to lepers that nobody else would care for. They gave, and they gave sacrificially. They gave, like the widow that Jesus said had more, who gave more graciously than anyone, her very last penny, two pennies. She gave it to the temple, and Jesus says, I wish that I could give as much as her, because she gave all she had. It's greater than, out of my thousands of dollars I make every month, giving a tenth of that. She gave more. And Christians who had nothing gave what they had. Sacrifice, love, and discipleship. Sacrifice, love, and discipleship look nothing like the suburban lifestyle dream. It looks nothing like segregation, redlining, individualism, or consumerism. It doesn't even look like capitalism. Capitalism is so overrated. It it doesn't look anything like this. It, it looks like the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Act on steroids. It's not just let's make it fair. Fair is a minimum. It's not just let's make it fair. Let's actually decrease my privilege to increase your privilege. And it certainly looks nothing like President Trump's tweet, where class and race are the determining factors in whether your basic needs get met where the poor and the hungry are stigmatized as bothersome criminals who exist only to harm the housing prices of people who are already privileged it looks nothing like that garbage so what does the kingdom dream look like well it looks like this in acts 2 and it looks has looked the church has been at the the vanguard at the spearhead of this upside-down kingdom dream for 2,000 years now. It looks like this. Everyone's needs are met. Everyone's. doesn't matter who you are. If you have needs, we will meet them. We will not ask for repayment. We will not demand that you be a good person before we love you. Everyone's needs are met. Those who have more than they need, like me, make small sacrifices with big benefits for those who are in greater need. Individualism is conquered by community. Others are welcomed and accepted from all walks of life, no matter their social, racial, sexual, or religious backgrounds, and are introduced to Jesus around the table of fellowship. The poor. The poor are given more than just food and clothing. They are given dignity and honor. They are given a voice. They are given a social place, which is of as much worth as a physical place to live. Different ethnicities with different languages celebrate the same truth, that God is good and Jesus is Lord. It's a kingdom dream of sacrifice and love and discipleship. It's not some idealized utopia. It's not we all get together and sing songs and everyone's happy all the time. This takes work. This takes a tremendous amount of work. It takes dedication. It takes commitment to the Holy Spirit. It takes commitment to taking your cross daily. This is not easy. We have it here, and it comes pretty naturally because we love one another. We can have potlucks together, and it feels good and right, and it's, it's a glimpse, it's a taste of this. But it still takes work. I'm not perfect. You have to work to love me. It's fine. I know that. It takes work. But where this dream is realized, whether it's in the suburbs or on an acreage, whether it's the inner city or way out in the middle of nowhere in Clyde, Alberta, wherever this dream is realized, wherever the kingdom dream is realized and fulfilled, the greatest of all things happen. Hearts are changed. Lives are fulfilled. Faith is multiplied. Needs are met. And most of all, the most important thing, where this kingdom dream is fulfilled, God is glorified. He is not glorified when you wall yourself into your little kingdom castle and seek only me, me, me. God can't be glorified. You might get glorified. Good for you. Then you'll die and it'll be for nothing. Do I have the strength to face the Goliath of the suburban lifestyle dream? That's our Goliath for the week. Do I have the strength, do I have the faith to stand up to the Goliath of the suburban lifestyle dream? Do I have the strength and faith to dream a new dream? A kingdom dream? A dream of sacrifice and love and discipleship? If I trust in the Spirit, make Jesus my Lord, then you bet I've got the strength. He will empower me. That is his whole role to empower us to look more like Jesus. And if we look more like Jesus, we are more sacrificial, we are more loving, and we are closer disciples. I have enough faith and strength to make this possible, to abandon the SLD and take up the SLD, if you know what I mean. More and more all the time, in fact, I have the strength and the faith, and you do too. And it starts by calling out the falseness of the first SLD, Suburban Lifestyle Dream, and by showing the second SLD, Sacrificial Love and Discipleship, to those who have been excluded from that dream. So let me close by saying this. It sounds like a political statement, which hurts me that it sounds like a political statement. It is not. It's a simple, simple affirmation. But allow me to affirm it. In this church, as in this kingdom, around this table, the poor are welcome here. Aboriginal people are welcome here. People of color are welcome here. You might be saying, yeah, obviously. Well, there's a lot of corners of our kingdom where that is not true. So I'll affirm it. LGBTQ plus people are welcome here. Sinners are welcome here. And saints are welcome here. Even Donald J. Trump, should he choose to stoop so low, would be welcome here. All, everyone is welcome here. Because how else are we supposed to grow? How else are we supposed to encounter sacrifice, love, discipleship, unless it's together, under the banner of Christ? And together, under that banner, we draw closer to the dream of Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the dreams that you give us. Beautiful dreams, challenging dreams of sacrifice and love and discipleship. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd shape each one of us more and more into something that looks like you. Somebody, a people, not just individuals, but a community that is welcoming and open while also tackling truth, um, while also shaping us closer into something that looks more and more like you. Thank you that you've accepted each one of us sinners um, and turned us into saints. I pray that we would be a place where All kinds of sinners are welcome around the table to grow in love, in sacrifice, in discipleship. Help us to turn from the suburban lifestyle dream and everything that it entails. Help us to call false individualism, consumerism, uh, wealth, uh, self-obsessed pursuits. Help us to turn from that as you did, Jesus, and help us to pursue you, to bring you glory. You are so good, Jesus And I thank you for the dreams that you give us individually, us as families, and us as a community. Um, Shape us, Holy Spirit, into sacrifice love and discipleship. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Um, So there's your your weekly dose of rage from your pastor. Hope it was edifying. Um, We are not a people, and this is what I love about you who exclude anyone. Anyone is free to walk in these doors and it might be uncomfortable. We might not know how to handle it, but you know that they're welcome and they know that they're welcome. And I knew from a very young age that I was welcome despite all my brokenness and all my flaws. And I continue to know that I'm welcome here despite all that's wrong with me. So thank you. Thank you for making this a welcoming place um, where sinners can become saints. You are good people. Um, have a great week. You saintly people, uh, love you very much, and thanks for coming today. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to gain their whole kingdom, to build up their whole suburban lifestyle dream, and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Do I have the power to seek first the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of me? Ethan, where is the Holy Spirit? (laughs) in his tummy.